Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. If you are a first-time listener, welcome to the podcast. If you are not a first-time listener, welcome back. And for those of you who are interested in the break that we just took in this season, I will have a personal note for all of you listeners at the end of this episode in our third segment. So, The title of today's episode, Cannabis, COVID, and Climate Change. It has been a couple months since we spoke, and I've been trying to figure out, you know, during this break, what exactly the topic was that I wanted to come back to. There's a lot going on in the news right now, whether you're talking about censorship of Joe Rogan or what's going on with Ukraine or Tucker Carlson's take on M&Ms and how sexual they should be. You know, there's lots of things that I could talk about. But for me, I thought the first and most obvious thing was to talk about COVID, talk about the pandemic. But there's so many takes going on about vaccine mandates and hesitancy and misinformation and schools. And there, there, there's so many things going on. I wanted to take a slightly different approach. I'm sure that some of you who follow me on Instagram recently saw me talk about this new study that's been done out of Oregon State University. The study conducted at Oregon State University is how I want to start this episode, uh, but just come with me a little bit here. We got a few different ways I want to branch off of it. But first and foremost, let's talk about this study. Research done at Oregon State University found that there are cannabis compounds that in a therapeutic way combined with a vaccine regimen can actually prevent coronavirus infections by blocking the virus from entering human cells. Now, when I first saw this, I immediately thought it was fake news. And I think it's a little weird that my mind kind of like went to, to that path. But when I first saw this news, I was like, there's no way that can be real. But sure enough, it is a legitimate study. I will have a link to this uh, to where I first got the information from down in the episode description, along with several other links, but we'll get to that a little bit later in the episode. But when I was able to realize this was in fact a real study, this is an amazing turn of events. Like I would hope that more people would be very excited about this. However, this story really hasn't gotten that much coverage, if any at all. And we'll get to the reasons why that is in a little bit here, but a little bit further into the study itself, it was saying that uh, not only can the virus, you know, protect, or not only can the can these compounds uh, protect your cells from the virus entering them, but if you already have been infected with coronavirus, if you are currently sick, uh, taking these compounds in a concentrated form can actually uh, slow or if not stop the spread of the virus that is in you currently and the disease that's causing it for people who are currently infective. Now, I'm not going to lie, there was a lot of extra, I guess, science-related 
uh, discussion that was going on in the articles that I was read about exactly how these compounds interact with your body, so on and so forth. Instead of getting into that details, I will just say again, I would direct everyone to go to the link that is in the episode description for a more broken down process of how these compounds interact with the virus itself. But I also want to say that we are in an age of people being weary of any and all information about COVID that doesn't come from certain sources. Uh, we are now living in the age of where people are very, very on edge about vaccine hesitancy and COVID misinformation. So I just also want to say up front that the study was in fact peer reviewed. Um, so just, you know, be aware of that. So this study does seem to have some merit behind it, but they also said that the study does need to have more human trials because as of now, they've only studied it in a laboratory uh, setting and also in mice. So it has not been studied in humans as of yet. But the findings point to the cannabis compounds as quote unquote virus neutralizing, capable of blocking the entry of COVID. However, you would need a high concentration of these compounds in order to achieve this result. So they're thinking of putting this, uh, these compounds either into a liquid form that you would digest or into a pill. So this is all good news. And I wanted to start coming back to the podcast after this break with some good news. There's so many negative news topics, and I'm sure that we will get to them very shortly, but I haven't done a story that felt good in a while. So I wanted to bring people some good news, a little bit of hope going on when it comes to COVID and the pandemic. Another tool that we might be able to add to our ongoing arsenal to deal with the pandemic. But I also want to talk about something along the same vein as these cannabis compounds which is something that maybe some of you are aware of, maybe some of you aren't, but I want to talk about it really quickly and I'll explain why at the end. So in December of 2018, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but President Trump at the time signed what was called the 2018 Farm Bill. Now this Farm Bill legalized industrial hemp here in America. So after like decades of this crop being caught up in like a broader cannabis prohibition, hemp, industrialized hemp was now legal here in America. And I actually came across this story about, I think a year after it happened in December of 2019. And I was a little taken aback that not only had I not heard about it until then, but it made basically no headlines. Again, for those of you who are unfamiliar, hemp is supposed to be considered by many of this like miracle plant. So many applications, so many things it can do. The fact that 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 was not really getting a whole lot of coverage seemed really troubling to me. And even since then, it would seem as though not that many people actually realize the fact that hemp has been not only legalized on this industrial level, but that there are people who are farming it across the country now. I mean, prior to its legalization, America was importing like $600 million worth of hemp a year from countries like China and Canada. Now this crop, I mean, hemp itself, for those, I might be telling people something that they already know, but for, if you don't know, hemp can be turned into just about anything. It, it would seem like, I mean, I'm not, I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but let me just run down a quick list of all the different things that you can do with hemp. So hemp can be used to make chocolate, shoes, flour, 
animal feed, paint, shampoo, diapers, nail polish, carpet, ink, solar panels, supplements, skin products, milk, batteries, cars, 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 the ridiculous fabric, concrete. And these last two are the ones I want to focus on paper and plastic. Now, I know I just routed off a long list of things, but let me highlight paper and plastic for a second here, because this is where I really want to put the focus on it when it comes to hemp in particular. So hemp paper, for instance, if we were to invest more in hemp paper here in America, it would be leading to less deforestation, which we all know has been a huge issue for climate change. We're talking about getting you know, carbon out of the atmosphere. We need to have more trees on this planet. We shouldn't be cutting them down. If we had an investment into hemp paper, that would lead, that would help lead that cause. Also, hemp paper happens to be more durable than wood paper. And it's also easier to process and requires fewer and less toxic chemicals. Also, it grows extremely quickly compared to trees, which can take decades to grow. So What's more amazing than just the paper applications are actually the plastic applications. Hemp plastic seems to be incredibly beneficial. So let me just talk to you a little bit about what's going on here with hemp plastic. One of the reasons why it like lends itself so well is because of the fact that it has cellulose. All plastics, no matter where they're derived, require cellulose to structure the like uniquely moldable yet durable characteristics of plastics. So for the longest time, we've been using oil, you know, petroleum as our like go-to ingredient in order to make plastics. Basically, all plastics are made out of oil, right? But unlike these oil-based like plastics that we currently have, basically for everything that you can think of in your life, how many, look around your home or your apartment right now, or your house or your apartment right now, like ask yourself, how many things do you own that are currently made out of plastic right now? It's a staggering thing, right? But this hemp plastic will actually be organically grown and is non-toxic. Not only that, but it's biodegradable. Hemp plastic is completely biodegradable, unlike plastic, well, regular like plastic, which I guess to a degree is biodegradable if you count the fact that it'll take maybe over a thousand years for it to actually decompose versus hemp plastic will take about three to six months to fully decompose and it can be recycled indefinitely. It is also, again, not toxic whatsoever. You don't have to deal with things like BPA when it comes to hemp plastic, completely safe. And again, renewable resource, which prevents soil erosion. There's less water involved. So you don't have to worry about water pollution as much. It absorbs toxic, medical, it absorbs toxic metals and can be cultivated over and over again. I mean, compared to these oil-based plastics, hemp plastic is actually three and a half times stronger and five times stiffer. So as a result, it's more durable and lower chance of breaking, which makes it safer. So, I mean, all in all, it is a superior product to oil-based plastics. And so the question that I have that it's probably a natural question to ask after this is like, where's the issue here? If hemp is this superior, uh, as far as like oil would be concerned, as far as plastic is concerned, and, you know, also talking about paper and various other things, then why aren't we seeing more products here in our country 
that are hemp based. I mean, you would think eventually that the market would take over, but it would seem as though one of the issues that we are seeing is that there's a lack of processing facilities uh, here in the States. So even if, so even though that hemp was legalized here in America and there were farmers able to finally go ahead and grow it and cultivate it, you have to have processing facilities in order to turn the raw hemp into all these various products that we just talked about. And that is where the hiccup is currently here in our country. We don't really have any facilities here in America. Well, not that many of them. Let me rephrase that. Not that many facilities here in America. And in fact, as of March of 2020, there were no facilities in America whatsoever that could compost hemp. This was leading to a lot of different issues. In fact, even in the state that I live in, in Montana, I was able to find uh, a little bit of a testimony here from somebody talking about their experience with farming hemp. Uh, the person here in particular, his name is Salvia Harris. She was talking about how she got into hemp farming in Montana in 2017. And said so at first it was really easy. It was really great. It was profitable. But then the processing got bottlenecked. A lot of farmers were like, well, I'm not going to do this again next year because I have tons and tons of hemp bales sitting in my barn, just rotting because I cannot, go, I cannot take them to get processed or the price of getting them processed was way more than they were willing to spend. And, and this is really across the board. It seemed like it was an issue that was happening, not just here in Montana, but all over the country. There are just not that many processing companies here in our country. And so the issue that we are now faced with is what are we going to do about this? Because as I was stating previously, hemp has so many benefits as far as not just paper and plastic, but all those different other things I listed, it would have a tremendous benefit, not just, you know, for society. I mean, not just for like, um, not just for those industries, but also for society as a whole, just thinking about the environmental impact of being able to replace plastic with a biodegradable form of it. And so what do we have to do in order to get more of these processing plants up and running here in the country so to make this start to become a reality? Well, there was two things that I wanted to talk to you guys about here today. The first is you can support hemp companies. As the demand rises here in the States and more interest grows, I think it'll become natural for private companies to want to invest more into these processing plants. And it'll just help some of these local hemp companies in general, just, you know, be able to sustain their business practices. So if talking about hemp farmers, hemp plastic companies, and for those who are interested, I have some links again in the episode description for a few companies that I was able to come across. I wasn't able to get a ton of them, but I got a few. So I'm going to link those in the description. Definitely check some of these companies out. If you can support these companies, uh, buy some products from them, uh, share their stuff on social media. We definitely want to support companies that are trying to promote a more healthy society for us all. But on top of supporting people directly, if you can, because I know that not everyone has the money to support these types of things. Another thing that you can do is ask your state and local representatives to invest in hemp or to invest in more specifically hemp 
processing facilities. Because here, here's the thing. We as a, as a country, we probably spend over a trillion dollars a year on various different things. You know, just for instance, we spend $800 billion a year on our military budget. Our military budget. While we're currently not at war, we spend that much money per year. $800 billion. My point I'm trying to make here with that is that there is plenty of money to go around to invest into things that are incredibly beneficial. We talk so much about climate change, about how it's an existential threat, but we haven't really seen a whole lot of movements on our government's behalf in order to address this existential threat. So I bring this all to you now. There's also, there's also uh, resources at your state and local level as well. And some of these people, if you actually do take the time to call them, they really don't, they really probably don't take a whole lot of calls from their constituents. I mean, not only would you probably get through to these people, there's a good chance they'll take you seriously if you sit, if you take the time to reach out to them and tell them what it is that you're interested in. So I would definitely recommend that, especially in a year like this year, where not only your state and local reps, but people are running for Congress, running for Senate this year. They're going to come asking for your vote this year. This might be a good time to tell them what you want in return. So I just want to put that out there, especially for these congressional candidates who are gearing up for primaries right now. If you, if they want your vote, tell them that, they need, that you need something in return for this. And so I kind of want to bring this back to the CBD story really quickly here, because it, it's not just hemp that really needs our help, but it's also if we're going back to the CBD like study, the person, one of the persons who was involved with that study was saying that the government kind of needs to step up on this end as well in order for this research to take, to take forward. So Richard Van Bremen, he is uh, the first author on the study that I referenced at the beginning of the episode. He's also a professor of medicinal chemistry at Oregon State University. And Going back to the study again, he was saying that these compounds can be taken orally and they have a long history of safe use in humans. And he also went on to say, we don't want to get overexcited, but we think it's clear what the next move by the Biden administration should be. They need to legalize marijuana so that this research can look into all avenues, including THCA, and fill America's breadbasket with cannabis plants and send every person in America all the marijuana extracts they need to finally end this thing. And, and so there is a role for the government to play here in trying to bring about some positive change in these two stories. Legalizing marijuana would, for so many different reasons, be beneficial, but particularly for this story, it in be able for researchers like this guy at Oregon State University and the team of other people around him to be able to further do research into this to see if there is a way that we could legitimately bring the pandemic to a grinding halt if there is a therapeutic in cannabis that can be cultivated to help people ultimately stop the flow of the virus once it's in them. I mean, that would be a massive game changer. To know that we could probably do that if people just had broader access to cannabis research through legalizing marijuana, we need to just ask for that now. We need to ask for that right now. The way that things are going right now in America, 
marijuana will most likely be legalized at some point in the next 20 years, like nationally. But we don't we shouldn't have to wait that long. We shouldn't have to wait every two years for one or two more states to legalize it, then one or two more states to legalize it. We should just get it legalized nationwide right now. This isn't a red or a blue state issue. It hasn't been. I don't think it ever has been in, at any point in history. I mean, truthfully, even red states like South Dakota, Alaska, Arizona, and now Montana have fully legalized marijuana use. If you're living in a state that hasn't yet, get on the phone with your people, with your constituents, and tell them to get their shit together. It's time to legalize marijuana completely. It's time to invest into hemp. It's time to invest into hemp processing facilities so that we can finally make the bridge away from oil-based plastics. Because here's the thing. This is the part of the episode where I really want to focus on climate change. We have been talking about for a long time the need to move away from fossil fuels. But what we don't talk about is what exactly that transition will look like. And there's so many different parts of that transition that are going to be very important. But one thing in particular that people need to recognize is that we have a lot, and I mean a lot, of plastic that is involved in our society. It's not going to be as simple as just finding new things to do that don't involve plastic. I mean, we have plastic in damn near everything that you see in your house. I mean, it's all over the place. So rather than trying to replace plastics with something else, we'll just create a new form of plastic, which is not toxic and biodegradable, enter hemp into the chat. So as we're making this transition away from fossil fuels, we need to be able to have the infrastructure in place in order to replace this toxic plastic with more environmentally friendly plastic. So if you are interested in calling some local reps, I highly suggest that you do that. Invest in these hemp companies, again, hemp farmers. Don't forget those links in the description. And if you're interested in calling your representatives in Washington, the phone number is 202-224-2222. You can reach your representatives in the House and the Senate through that phone number. Give them a call. Someone does listen. Give them a call. So I want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen to this first half of the episode. If you liked this first half of the episode, please share this episode on social media. And if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and just tag Independent Thought where you where you share it at facebook twitter instagram wherever it is that you are sharing this at thank you so much we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we'll have my guest for this week stay tuned hey indie thought listeners has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side well then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. 
You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage-inspired clothing, shoes, and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us to another episode of Independent Thought. I am joined today by my guest, Blair Walsingham. How are you doing today? And thank you for coming on to the podcast. I am doing wonderful today. Thank you for having me on. Um, it's fall, everybody. So it's a, it's a good time to get out and be out. And um, it's just a beautiful day. Yeah, absolutely. So Blair was a former congressional candidate for the first congressional district of Tennessee. And I wanted to ask her on the podcast, ask her exactly what that's like to, you know, run, you know, for Congress, because there's not that many people who have that on their resume. So I wanted to ask you about that and what it was like running in Tennessee. Uh, but kind of before we get into the specifics of what that was like, I want to just ask you some, a more basic question. Mm -hmm. What people don't really know is just kind of like the impact that running for Congress can have on someone's life. Could you just speak to a little bit to how exactly that impacted you and what was it like running for Congress? Well, that's a really good question. And I feel like um, until you've experienced that, you don't really understand how much it does impact the person's life. I've volunteered on campaigns, I've canvassed, I've seen it from the sidelines and helped out, but experience it is something entirely different. It takes over your life. You really have to dedicate every moment to it, whether you're answering phone calls or talking to people, if they recognize you in the grocery store or picking up your kids from school, you are not just your average self. You are now a congressional nominee and everything you do is under a lens and everywhere you go is an opportunity to you know, share some insight with somebody. So <clears throat> it's incredibly impactful. It can be a bit overwhelming and uh, people expect so much from you. There's times where it could be a Facebook comment and they're like, oh, she didn't comment in 30 seconds. She shouldn't run for Congress because she clearly doesn't have the time. Uh, I did an AMA on Reddit, which almost had me in tears. I was responding to people. I'm doing this myself. I don't have a hired team of people making up answers for me. It's, it's me. And <laughs> uh, they would say, uh, you know, why aren't you responding fast enough or what's taking you so long to answer a question? Well, I'm writing you a whole novel <laughs> on an answer while I have my, you know, one-year-old in my lap. And I would get the same response. Well, you're a mother and you have kids. You shouldn't be running for office. Um, it was incredible. Some of the negativity that you receive um, 
in interviews, I got asked the same thing. Uh, you have children. How are you going to actually work in Congress? How many men have children that work in Congress? Plenty. And <laughs> they never get asked this question. So there's just like a wide variety of things that happen um, when you're running. And, um, you know, I gave up my job for, for this. I gave up my personal life mostly for this and really did everything I could for my community during my congressional run, which I, I did become the nominee for this area. And I went on to the general um, and it was phenomenal. And I think it was an amazing experience. I would definitely encourage more people to run for office. The challenges will only help you grow. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit of an insight right there. I could not imagine having to deal with people who are saying, why aren't you answering fast enough? That is, that is so obnoxious. If anyone's listening to this right now and they're one of those people, please just stop doing things like that. <laughs> okay. So I, I think more specifically, I also want to kind of ask you about the area that you ran in because, mm -hmm. you know, to my understanding, you ran in the, the first district of Tennessee, which has gone for a Republican, I think what, since what, like over a hundred years, I think it has been something along those lines. 141 years now we've been all elected Republican here. And you ran as a Democrat. That's, uh, that's very <laughs> brave. So what exactly was that like running as a Democrat in a district that has been red you know, since the, what, the civil war? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time. It was super interesting because, um, we had a bunch of people who were really confused. Uh, I would say things that maybe a typical Democrat wouldn't say. And they would say, did you only run as a Democrat because the field was lower? We had like 18 uh, Republicans running for the primary. Oh wow! So the Democratic field was much smaller. We had two official candidates running on the ballot under the Dem party, and I became the third. And then we had an independent or two who was also running. So uh, people are like, yeah, that's crazy. Or you're never going to win, you know, like why bother? Why make the effort? And, um, it was challenging. It really is. Uh, there was times where I've seen people canvassing or just standing on a corner with a sign, trying to talk to voters in a public space who were spit at, cussed out, had stuff thrown on them, water poured on them just because they knew they were there for a democratic party. So there is a lot of aggression, uh, that comes with being a Dem here. So that leads to a wall. Uh, I would give speeches or talk to people and they would say, hey, what party are you with? I loved everything you said. And the moment they realized there was a D next to your name, there would this, this barrier would go up. And that was probably the biggest challenge uh, that I faced here is getting the foot in the door so that we can get past the preconceived notions to talk about the problems that actually affect the day-to-day -day lives of people in these communities. Yeah. And I couldn't even imagine what that possibly like felt like, you know, to have that much vitriol come your way, especially just for having a D next to your name. I mean, I I've never lived in that part of the country, so I don't understand the culture behind it, but could you just like, tell me how, how did you attempt to, or how did you break through with people who felt that way about the D democratic party? Like, how did you actually find common ground? Well, it's, it's surprising. We have more common ground than you would ever believe. At the end of the day, most people want the same thing. They want to come home safe. They want to feed their families. They want to keep a roof over their head. They want to have a future. That's at the, at the ground level. That's what we all want. Um, so you, people would ask me, how do you talk to Republicans or independents or at this time, Trump supporters? How can you even talk to them? And I would say you talk to them like you do anybody else. 
(laughs) be real and talk to them because they see problems. We might not agree on many things and we might see different paths to get to somewhere else. uh, But at the the core of it, we all see the same problems. And um, I even did surveys. You know, I would say, what party do you identify with? And on a scale of one to 10, how corrupt do you think the Republican Party is? How corrupt do you think the Democratic Party is? And almost all the answers are the same. There's a ton of Republicans and independents here, obviously, but they still said both parties were corrupt and that we needed reforms and changes. And they largely agreed on the solutions to get there. Well, okay. You know, actually, that uniquely leads me right into my next question, which I already <laughs> had written down here. So, you know, what were the issues that united people? Uh, yeah, I actually really love this question. So obviously government reforms of various it's really a spectrum between making sure we have secure voting. And that means different things to different people, right. uh, accessible voting, um, dealing with poverty. But the biggest ones that everybody cares about is jobs in the economy. Everybody wants the opportunity to succeed and achieve what they view as the American dream. Um, so especially out here, I'm in very rural communities. It's a vast area. We face a lot of poverty. What can we do? You know, we need better educations. We need healthcare. We need opportunity. So really there's a lot of issues that people come together on. It's just a variety of solutions. That is the difference. No, absolutely. And so I kind of want to transition a little bit to more policy focused question now, because, you know, a secondary reason why I wanted to have you on today was also to talk about universal basic income. So I have had some brief conversations about this on my podcast, but nothing truly in depth. I know that this was something that you strongly believe in. I think, you, was it a part of your platform when you ran? It was. It was a main part of my platform, which people said, that's crazy. You're in red rural R plus 28 Tennessee. How are you going to talk about universal basic income? And right. it was successful. Yeah. And, and so I know that there are some like, you know, like casual political observers who maybe have heard this term before, but they're not sure exactly what it is. Or maybe they've heard a little bit about it, but they haven't heard too much in depth. So that this is kind of like where I want to go with the conversation. Now, can you just explain to the best of your ability, like what exactly universal basic income is and why do you think it's important? Absolutely. So universal basic income is, it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. There is different plans out there, different methods of how to pay for it, different ways it would work. So when I say universal basic income, I'm talking about a dividend that would get paid to every American citizen, 18 and up. Um, We can negotiate the amount, but we like to start at at about $1,000. And you just, you get it. You deserve it. You are a shareholder of this nation. You and your parents and grandparents and ancestors work to build it up to what it is. You pay taxes. You're a contributor and you deserve a share of the prosperity that is America. So that would, that's basic outline of what UBI means, uh, at least to me. Okay. And I, I guess when I think about this a little bit further, and, and we talk about people who are familiar with it, who have had conversations with it, I've seen them, people debate about this, whether they were in more like debate panels or, you know, politicians talking about it, there is some pushback to it. And, and so mm-hmm. I guess for someone who might be a little unsure about it, like, how do you sell the idea of UBI to somebody who's kind of on the fence about it? It depends on what their objection is, but it's actually really easy to counter. And I'll preface this with the first time I heard about UBI 
was actually Andrew Yang speaking about it. <laughs> and I hated it. I was like, this is nuts. I hate it. Of course, people are going to want it. You're giving them free money. And I had all these negative preconceived ideas about how this would look. And I started doing research and I met with economists and I read like seven books. And I was like, wow, this is the best idea that we could possibly have. And, and why haven't we done it sooner? We had about all the way back to Thomas Paine and um, Martin Luther King Jr. is championing UBI. So this is not a new idea. And even the amounts that we're suggesting is, is from the 60s. Uh, and if you look at the economic changes we've had, that's a, it was a lot more money back then than it even is now. So it's really not even a large sum of money to most people, which is the negative commentation you get, right, is the leading one. It's so much money that people will be lazy or they'll make bad choices. Won't they buy drugs with it? Won't they just be lazy bums? Okay. So yes, of course, there's always going to be some bad apples, right? So there's going to be people who don't make the best choices, but the majority of people are, are not going to tell their boss, your boss calls, Hey, I'm going to give you a thousand dollar raise a month. Are you going to quit? You're like, no, I, you know what? I just want, no, I don't want it anymore. <laughs> no, you're going to take that raise and you're going to continue working hard. Uh, $1,000 a month is not enough for people to live on. It's not enough to thrive on. Um, it only helps people get out of the trap that is poverty, whether they are living paycheck to paycheck or they had a rough start, they're released from incarceration, aging out of the foster care system you're a single mother, you need to escape abusive relationship. This is why I love UBI and the universal aspect of it. People know what they need better than a government regulated program that makes you go through hoops and is largely unattainable. If you look further into these programs, uh, most of the funding is never given out, even to the people who qualify. So what we're saying is let's skip the government deciding who needs what and say that you as an adult, an American shareholder should decide to do what you want with this money to make your life successful, invest it and start up your own business, repair your house, put your kids um, through college, pay for medical debt, whatever it may be, um, and stop making people jump through hoops. And the data backs this up. This isn't, again, this isn't new. Alaska has something, it's, it's on a smaller scale where they give their, their citizens a dividend every year. There's results from that. The Eastern Band of Cherokees in North Carolina, they have a massive UBI within their community, and it has had phenomenal results from reducing mental health um, problems, lowering suicide rates, reducing abortion rates drastically. Um, it just helps people be successful, happy, and healthy, and that's truly what we need to start valuing um, as we look at how well our country is doing. Well, how are our people doing? Our suicide rates are at all-time highs. People are struggling all over the country. Mass evictions, medical debt, bankruptcy. It's not good. So we really need to do something drastic and something that's reasonable. And it's funny to put those two words together, but that's exactly how I see UBI. It is a drastic measure that'll make huge strides and change for people. And it's incredibly reasonable and fair. Okay. I guess, you know, it seems that it has, you know, a lot of positive, like upside to it. it. It would seem like a no brainer when you really kind of get into the weeds of it, mm -hmm. but there are still like a couple, a couple of pushbacks that people still have about it. And so I kind of want to address them little by little. Um, first of all, is this something that can happen on a, on a local level or would it have to be implemented on a national level? Just given, given how it would be paid for and We'll get to that part next. Okay. So 
we can do it on local levels, but it's much harder. Um, for example, the Cher- the Eastern Band of Cherokees, they fund theirs with casino revenue. So to them, they have a local way that they can afford that. But that's not going to work out here where I live, right? In rural Hawkins County, Tennessee, there's not a casino out here. There is no mass revenue that leads to extra spending. Now, we can talk about creative solutions to that that'll work in different areas, such as uh, legalizing marijuana and regulating and taxing that and having some of that money go into paying for it. Uh, You can look at different ways to pay for it on local levers, but again, it's going to be different everywhere because there's different problems and different solutions um, in different areas. But it's definitely doable, and you can see it. Uh, There's mayors for a guaranteed income. So mayors all over the country have signed up and say, I'm going to implement this on my local level and see what happens. You have a lot of nonprofit and crowdfundings also doing similar trials where they've said, we're just going to pull a bunch of money and we're going to do a sample test and see what the results are. And I mentioned some of those already, like people who are aging out of the foster care system who just need a little bit of a boost to stand on. They don't necessarily have the support system set up to get started things of that nature. The part that I don't like about the trials is it's not universal and it's not necessarily fair. And that creates tension among people. Why is somebody getting something that I'm not? And that is a big pushback to UBI. Um, If we do it universal, it's fair. Everybody's going to get that. It's yours. It's theirs. It's everybody's. Um, So that takes away that stigma of I'm on a program and somebody's not where I'm paying for something that somebody else is getting. You just stole my next question. So I guess I have to skip oh, no. over it. <laughs> I, was no, gonna, no. <laughs> I was gonna ask you, what do you not like about it? But you just already answered that. So I guess I want to just go into my final question about it, which is, you know, when I talk to my more conservative friends, my more like, you know, independent friends, the question that they always ask is the same question, which is, well, how are you going to pay for it? Which is a, a question that I've been more or less annoyed with, you know, recently with listening to reconciliation talks and so on and so forth. But that's a different conversation. So I, I guess just, from your perspective, how mm-hmm. does this get paid for to address that critique for those who have it? I'll jump, I'll jump into how we can pay for it. And it's, it seems really complicated, but it's actually quite simple. But I actually want to touch back on, on your, your second question of what don't I like about it? Because I said, I don't like it because it's not universal, right? right? It's all these little sections. Um, but I actually thought about this quite long. And if we can say we tested 50 different demographics and we got all the same results, it actually is proof that we should have it as universal because we know it's not going to only benefit one community better. It would actually benefit everybody. So as the middle class is shrinking, you may see those people as like, they're doing well, they kind of have a home, but maybe they can't, they can't get anywhere else. They're trapped in that cycle. It really brings everybody up a notch um, to really level out equity. Um, So there's, there's a, a little bit of a catch 22 there. So I don't like it, but it actually helps actually prove why it should be universal. So now <laughs> I'll touch on why it should uh, be on the federal level and how we would pay for it. Federally, we could just mandate it. This is a program we're doing here in America. It's been tried all over the world. It's been implemented on local levels in many places. We have the data, let's do it. So now we get to the talk, how do we pay for this? And how much is it gonna cost? We have a lot of people in America right? Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're a big country. It's a lot of money. So let's just stick with uh, the $1,000 a month to kind of keep this simple. Um, our country, our national like income right, is $24 trillion. So realistically, we're looking at a $2.5 trillion price tag on this. 
And that's where people go, oh my gosh, trillions of dollars. How can we afford this? We can't afford this. The question is more or less, how can we not afford this? We have all kinds of things that we're paying for on the back end because we're not supporting our country right now. So we can take uh, funds from programs that aren't actually being allocated to people and slot it over. We can come up with a funding mechanism such as a value added tax, which literally almost every country in the world has and has high levels of. America is not one of them that has it yet. We are going to implement a VAT tax at some point and we should be proactive in saying we will take the VAT tax, but this is how much we want it to be. And we want to make sure that this is actually benefiting the people who make this country run. Um, and that would be how UBI would work. Um, we can look at environmental factors such as carbon taxes. Um, Citizens Climate Lobby has a great one that would actually give people a dividend and help reduce the carbon footprint at the same time while pushing companies into sustainable, renewable um, productivity. So when we, when we look at it, it's initially like a shocker, but um, behind the scenes, it's really not. We throw up billions of dollars on all kinds of programs that have no checks and balances on them. There's all kinds of committees in Congress. They give tax breaks to corporations in the masses while we get nothing and we pay our fair share of taxes. I, I'm advocating and suggesting we make sure that all of these companies are actually paying their fair share of taxes that can also help fund a universal basic income. So it's really not a matter of how do we do it? We have so many different paths to making this affordable and reasonable and fair for everyone. Okay. You know, I, I do think that, you know, someone came into this not being completely aware of UBI and the challenges it faces. I, I think that, you know, you definitely have cleared some things up for us. So, so I do appreciate you taking the time to explain all that. I, I guess my final question for you is, I got to imagine that there's some part of you that might want to run for Congress again. So is there any early indication? Do you think that you might be running for Congress again? Can you give us an early scoop? <laughs> That's a great question. So as you know, this is a really red rural district and there's not a clear path to victory here. I did the best in the history of this district as a Democratic nominee. Um, that being said, there's not a clear path to victory. I could run again and I can keep continue building these walls and talking to people in my community and doing good, but I don't necessarily have to run for office to do that. I will say it benefits it because people tend to listen to you more openly when you're a candidate, um, but I'm unsure. I'm unsure if that's the correct path to take and the best way that I can help people locally. Uh, I will say that my county is looking for a new mayor and that is intriguing to me also because I could really help um, my direct community and the people that I know the best. But uh, running for Congress was appealing to me to be able to make the changes that we need systemically all over the country. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, I'm an Air Force veteran and I come from a long line of military vets. I have lived all over the country. I have friends and family all over the country. So it appeals to me on a broad spectrum um, to be able to affect lives in such a large impactful way. Um, that being said again, the question is, why do I have to run as only a Republican Democrat? We have over 54 parties in this country. So why am I limited to only one or two? Especially where I have this barrier here of people see a D and make lots of assumptions, right? So I really think that some of the work that we can do, um, such as ranked choice voting and open primaries would unlock a door for people to be able to run under different banners and actually be successful even here in a rural state, rural red state as Tennessee 01. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much, Blair, you know, for coming on the podcast today and talking to us about, you know, your, your experience on the campaign trail and for, you know, telling us more about UBI, where can people like, uh, keep up with you? Where can they follow you at online? So you can go to blairforcongress.com. My website is still up. It's a little messy, (laughs) but I'm going to update it soon. So feel free to go there. You can find my Twitter, Facebook, Um, You can contact me directly even, and you can also go to forwardparty.com and find more about me there as well. Okay. So thank you so much for coming on today. And for everyone who's interested, I'll have those links down in the episode description and just uh, take one final break with me. And we'll be right back with my final thoughts of the day. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this break. First of all, I want to thank all of the subscribers. If you are subscribed to this podcast and you are checking out every episode, thank you so much for doing that, especially those who have been sticking with me uh, through this past break. And especially if you're a subscriber who's been with the podcast for over a year now. I mean, my hat's off to you. I'm over here clapping, you know, really softly away from the microphone. So it's not like banging in your ears right now, but you know, major thanks to you and a major, major thanks. Maybe there's going to be a better word than major, major, a colossal colossal is a strong word, a huge thanks to the people who are subscribed to my Patreon, all of you who are in not only investing in me, but in this podcast, I mean, it is it is so greatly and deeply appreciated. I, I just can't even tell you, especially those who stuck around through the last couple of months while I wasn't putting out episodes. Thank you so much for investing in independent thought. There's going to be plenty of good things to come throughout the rest of this year. I also want to thank my guest, Blair Walsingham, for coming on to the podcast and dropping a tremendous amount of knowledge. I am hoping to have you back on again in the future. Uh, but also for giving, for taking the time to talk about universal basic income, I get the feeling that that will be a topic that we will revisit in the future. Speaking of the future, what's next for the podcast will be my final candidate episode for the season with Claudia Zapata. She is running for Texas's 21st district and the primaries for Texas are right around the corner. I mean, it seems like uh, early voting will start in two weeks. So we're going to get that episode out to the people. Uh, Following that episode, though, I will have another full regular episode coming right after that. I told some of you that I would give you my thoughts on Joe Rogan and censorship of his podcast. So I will do that. That will be the next topic that I bring to you. And usually when I do any episodes, they're usually, I spit off a bunch of facts that I've researched, and then I'll give you my opinion in between. I think this will be one of those rare times where that's not going to be the formula. I'll just be just giving you just straight opinion, nothing but opinion uh, throughout the entire, the entirety of my take on Joe Rogan. Uh, So also I also, before this episode is finished, I wanted just to briefly touch on why I picked these topics. So climate change in particular was something that we heard so much about 
in the primaries leading up to the 2020 election. And for those of you who are, have been with my podcast from season one, I don't recommend going back. If you have just, just like, let me just not even talk about season one. It was a bad season. Let's not talk about it. But if you have listened to it, this podcast started in the 2020 primary season. I watched every single debate. I watched so many interviews with all those people. Like I was full junkie mode when it came to everything that was going on, reading the polls every day, so on and so forth. And all like 4,000 people who were running for president uh, leading, up to, leading up to the 2020 uh, election, they were all in lockstep about how climate change was an existential threat. And I gotta say, I understand that we're living through a pandemic right now, but the, the conversation around climate change has all but come to a, a whimper, if it even exists whatsoever at all. So this existential threat is now no longer even spoken about. And that just truly doesn't sit right with me. It, it really doesn't. Uh, I don't understand how you can get the whole country to be on board with how much of a threat this is. And now that Democrats are in office, there's literally no movement whatsoever. And if there is any movement, it's them saying, well, we have some provisions in the Build Back Better bill, but that damn Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, they just they just won't let us pass our legislation. It, and, oh, we rejoined the Paris Climate Accords. Isn't that something? It, it, it seems very weak. It all seems very weak and not the response that you would expect from people who called it an existential threat. At the same time, I also wanted to touch on a story that there's maybe something that we could do. Too often, I feel like I'm coming on this podcast and I'm just giving people just bad news after bad news after bad news. And it's like, well, what are you going to do about it? So I thought this would be a nice story that we could talk about where I'm giving some information, but I'm also more or less trying to implore people to get involved, to get back into a little bit of activism. I recently did a poll on Instagram and it would seem that half the people uh, I, the question I asked was, do you feel as politically engaged or motivated as you did a year ago? And more than half of the respondents said no. And I understand it. I, I really do. I'm not, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad for answering that way. But I would hope that people would kind of flick the switch at some point and maybe get just a little bit more back into it because while 2020 was a horrendously bad year, it was positive in one way. And that one way was people were very politically motivated. And if things are ever going to generally, like generally improve in our country, it's going to be from, an, a, a, I guess, to, for lack of better words, a more activist movement amongst us, the people, actually taking the time to understand the issues happening in our society and demanding change versus hoping that politicians will deliver it while we're not paying attention to what they're doing. That, that's, that's not going to work. It hasn't worked. It's not working currently. I don't think it's going to work in the future. I think things aren't going to get better unless we demand better and we can't demand better if we don't know what it is that we're missing. So that is my hope for sharing a story like this 
and future stories that will come. Uh, to kind of wrap this up though, I want to say that I said at the very beginning that, you know, I have not been on the podcast for the past couple of months and I was going to give you a reason for it. The truth of the matter is, is that, you know, without getting into too many details here, uh, your podcast host has been dealing with some ongoing medical issues. They have more or less kept me from being as consistent with the podcast that I would like. I am hoping that they are behind me now, but truthfully, I just do not know. So my hope is that the podcast will kind of rebound and kind of go back to its normal schedule. Uh, but I, I just don't know that I will for sure, but you know, I'm going to take it one week at a time and hopefully, you know, it will kind of all like level itself out, even itself out and things will kind of get back to normal. But all in all, I wanted to say lastly, before we end off here that, um, I do appreciate those who did take the time to come back after this break. And I'm hoping to have lots more for you throughout the rest of this year. So thank you for sticking tuned to Independent Thought. And like I said at the beginning of the, or right before the first break, if you liked this episode, please share this episode on social media, tag Independent Thought. We'll see you in the next episode. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.